Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a very special presentation and conversation with Academy Award-winning film and sound editor, Walter Murch, whose passion for astrophysics was the impetus for the new book, Waves Passing in the Night, Walter Murch in the Land of the Astrophysicists. This conversation is hosted by Michael Lerner. I'm delighted to be back with Walter Murch, um, and we will be hearing from Walter about uh, his work, uh, and um, based on a new book that's just come out called Waves Passing in the Night, um, Walter Murch in the Land of the Astrophysicists by Lawrence Wexler. And this book has a, a wonderful history to it, and indeed, uh, Walter uh, gave me a copy with this note to Michael and Commonweal, without whom this book would not have uh, been born. And so it really uh, came into being because Lawrence Wexler attended um, a, a gathering at Commonweal um, where Walter presented this, um, this material. And uh, in fact, in the book, he... Um, he thanks uh, Commonweal for, uh, for having given, uh, given the impetus for the book. The book is extraordinary. Uh, we've been doing the new school at Commonweal for 10 years. And if you ask me uh, to name the two presentations of which I am um, most, for which I'm most grateful, uh, be uh, the spiritual biography of Brother David Steindlerast, who's a very great spiritual teacher, uh, and I would say a, a moral genius. Um, and uh, the other is the presentation that Walter Murch did, and in fact, the set of presentations that Walter has done here at Commonweal. Um, I find Walter's mind to be easily the most interesting in West Marin and uh, potentially uh, the most interesting in a much larger radius than that. Um, the, the term genius is used lightly in many cases, and I don't want to embarrass Walter, but um, the breadth and depth of his thinking is simply extraordinary. And I know no better... Uh, introduction to it than this book by Lawrence Wexler. Um, the, um, the thing about this book is that it both presents Walter's uh, extraordinary work uh, with hypotheses in astrophysics, but it also presents the critical analysis of a number of um, astrophysicists and, and does so in a beautifully balanced way so that he is both completely embracing Walter's work and then putting Walter in dialogue with a whole set of astrophysicists uh, who have varying degrees of skepticism about the hypothesis. But the result, this dynamic interaction between Walter and the astrophysics community is exquisite. And in that context, you see a lot of, of Walter's mind at work. Uh, I, I think I may have said that I think Walter has the most interesting mind in West Marin, but another way of saying it would be not that he possesses the most interesting mind, but that he is possessed by the most interesting mind. And the question is one of uh, your sort of worldview about how mind works, and is it local or translocal, and is Walter does he possess this mind, or does it possess him 
uh, and the whole question of local versus non-local consciousness emerges from this. But to me, um, this is exquisitely interesting, and so I'm honored and grateful to have Walter back. Great, great to be here. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Um, I, you know, I've also been living here for 45 years, so right. the mind comes out of the environment that right. it's in. You know? it's, uh, there's, a, there's a real blending of that. We, we were just, uh, Lawrence and I were just in uh, at the University of Santa Cruz last night giving a presentation what what distinguished last night from the other events that we've been doing in New York and Los Angeles and now in the Bay Area is that we were on stage with an astrophysicist who looked, he had read the book and then he looked at what I was going to show and what I'm going to show here and I was amazed that they were open to this. Um, they, I, I think the, 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 the principle on which all of this is based is known popularly as Bode's Law. Bode was an uh, astronomer in the 18th century. Typically, he didn't invent this law. Uh, names are frequently given to the person who then uh, spreads them widest, and, mm. and he was he was sort of the Neil deGrasse Tyson of his era, and he latched onto this very simple uh, mathematical algorithm. It, it looks like something out of ninth grade algebra. It's not complicated at all. Um, uh, but what what the astrophysics community is allergic to is the word law, which to them conjures up something like. Newton's law of gravitation, which you can calculate to the, uh, I don't know what it, what it is, the, you know, the eighth decimal place or any of the laws of quantum mechanics. And that. this is not that. This, this is a, a, uh, an observation about some kind of underlying principle that will manifest itself given the right conditions. The, the analogy I, I gave last night uh, when, when this uh, point was brought up was imagine you're driving down the road past a farm that's growing sunflowers and you pass a field with 10,000 sunflowers, all of which are pointed at you, and you just see these 10,000 round eyes staring back at you. you. You're hit viscerally by roundness. If you stopped the car, got out, took out your micrometer and measured the flowers, none of them would really be round. They would all be slightly squished or oblong, but they are trying to be round, and it's clear to us that there is something in their DNA that is causing that roundness to happen. Now, of course, they're living in the real world, and there wasn't enough water in May, and there was too much sun in June, and so the flowers are a little odd. And so this, what I'm going to show you, is a principle that says, under the right conditions, planets will have this kind of spacing, as they do in our solar system, with one notable exception— as the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune do, with some exceptions. And now we're finding the same pattern showing up in exoplanets with some and, in fact, many exceptions. Um, so it's, it's an exciting time. Uh, up, up until about four years ago, if you wrote a paper, or more pointedly, if I wrote a paper, uh, that was sufficiently uh, strong enough to get sent to a 
peer-reviewed journal, and it had the words Titius Bode in it, the two scientists in question, they would immediately put it in the round file. That it just any mention of this principle was inadmissible. So uh, there have recently, not through me, but through other astronomers, there have been, uh, the ice is beginning to crack up a bit, and we'll see what happens in the next five or ten years. So what shall we do here? Please start. Okay. <laughs> um, this is, I, I should say, this, it's, this, thinking about this kind of stuff is a big relief from Trumpism and uh, the Trumpocracy and the chaos of that, that, that here we're looking at systems that on the surface seem to be irregular, but finding a hidden regularity under them. Here's uh, Galileo's actual drawings in 1610, roughly 400 years ago, of the first non-naked eye objects ever seen by a human being. Uh, he was the first person, Galileo, to have the uh, presence of mind to take a telescope, the newly invented telescope, and point it at the heavens and see, to see what he could see. And what he saw uh, was this, uh, the circle, the big circle is the planet Jupiter, and surrounding it are four stars, or what he thought initially were stars. When he came back the next night to have a better view, uh, they were in different positions. And so he thought, well, that's curious. The, the third night, they were in still different positions. And so he, be, he understood that they were not stars, but that they were satellites, moons of Jupiter. And he named them the Medician moons in honor of his patron, the Medicis. But they later on got the names uh, that are given here, who, are, who were the lovers of the god Jupiter. That's a mixture of different sexes here, so it's uh, uh, very um, uh, kind of open uh, idea. <laughs> Uh, 400 years later, we, um, human beings, took this picture. Uh, the central object does not really look like that, that there is a star hidden behind there, but this, there's some kind of spectral effect that the astronomers do to dim the brilliance of the star so that they can see those three orange objects, uh, which are planets. And this is the first time we've ever actually photographed exoplanets. The, so the, the, the visual reality of a planet around another star. You may know that, that most of the time, in fact, 99, whatever percent, uh, we're seeing exoplanets only by inference because they cause the star to wobble a little bit in a certain direction or the star dims as these planets pass in front of them. So in 2008, we saw these three planets for the first time. They, they have the very romantic names of B, C, and D. Uh, the star itself is even more romantically named HR8799. It's pretty close to us as these things go. In the, in the Milky Way, uh, Milky Way is 100,000 light years in diameter, so this is only one one-thousandth of the distance away from us. Uh, and it's very new, it's a new system, uh, star only 30 million years old. I have no idea how they calculate this kind of stuff, but that's, uh, that's the, the current feeling. These planets are in orbit. The orbits are elliptical, meaning they have that kind of oval quality of an ellipsis, but 
for the purposes of what we're going to talk about tonight, I, I've idealized these orbits into circles. And since that picture was taken, they've discovered a smaller planet even further in towards the, the star. Those numbers are uh, what are called astronomical units. And one astronomical unit is the distance of the Earth from the Sun. So doing multiplication, we can see that the planet C is about as far away from its star as Pluto is from our Sun. The B planet is way out there, and uh, E is somewhere around, uh, well, I don't know, Neptune or something. So Uranus. So it, it's, it's big and expansive, and the planets are double or triple size of Jupiter, which is why we were able to photograph them. But here's the curious thing. If you take Galileo's drawing, uh, or Galileo's moons, and bring them in, despite the difference in scale, the orbits line up almost exactly with these 5,000 times bigger planets. Uh, the, the orbits are 5,000 times bigger. Those decimal numbers there are also astronomical units, so you can get a sense of how tiny it is. And if we brought in the orbits of Earth, Mars, and Ceres, Ceres is the center of the asteroid belt, um, they also fit. And they're sort of mama bear type uh, orbits. They're somewhere in the middle. So what we're going to be looking at in the next 20 minutes or so is why do these things happen? How do they happen? What is the pattern? And uh, why do, we can speculate about why it happens. And that's a, a very rich uh, vein of discussion, um, which involves some of the speculation about some of the groundbreaking things that are being done in, astronomer, in astronomy. I, uh, on the other hand, this word, a very uh, useful word, is apophenia. Um, which means the tendency human beings have to see patterns where none exist. So if you're having breakfast tomorrow and Jesus' face appears in an English muffin, you're having an apophenic moment. <laughs> but apophenia is the extreme case of something that almost defines us as human beings, which is the search for patterns in places where it seems at first glance to be chaotic. And it's at, at, at the core of scientific uh, discovery and to a certain extent in filmmaking, we are looking for patterns, uh, interesting patterns, and then trying to figure out how they all fit together. So I'm the, the point is I'm aware of uh, how how far out on the gangplank I am in some of this discussion because as I said earlier, the discussion of, of Bode's law is taboo among uh, or has until recently been taboo uh, in serious. Uh, astronomical circles. And this is the guy who started it all. His German name was Dietz, but when you got your doctorate back then, you wrote in Latin, all of your papers were in Latin, so you had to sign your name in Latin, so he became Titius. By the same token, that's why Copernicus became that, because he was originally Copernic, meaning his family were people who sold copper uh, sometime in the past. 
And he was translating a uh, work on natural history by a French author. And in those days, uh, in addition to having Latin names, there was no such thing as uh, bottom-of-the-page notations. You just translated, and if you felt like adding something, you just added it without asking anyone's permission. What he added to this uh, book was, here's something funny, curious. If you start with a doubling series, one, two, four, eight, blah, 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 and just for the hell of it, add zero at the beginning. We'll talk about that in a second. And then you take those numbers and multiply them by three, and then take those numbers, of course, and divide by four. Add four. A add four, sorry. And then uh, divide those numbers by 10. You get a series of numbers, seemingly meaningless numbers. But if you line these numbers with the distances of the known planets at the time, there is a congruence uh, down to about 2%. Um, Mercury 3.39, uh, the law says, or the observation says 0.4. Venus 0.72, the observation is 0.7. This was a curiosity, and it was curious that there was one place that was blank, somewhere between Mars and Jupiter. Titius, who was a religious person, said, would the good Lord have left this space empty? No. <laughs> Astronomers, point your telescopes at that distance and see what you find. A couple of years later, along came uh, Mr. Bode, who was the Carl Sagan, uh, I said, of the 18th century, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was also a, a uh, groundbreaking astronomer uh, on his own right. And he thought the, the Titius's observation was interesting enough that he formalized it into what we were talking about, this, this sort of ninth grade algebra. 4 plus 3 times 2 to some power, x, divided by 10. And x he defined as minus infinity, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on. I, I worked on a film, one of Francis Coppola's films, about 10 or 12 years ago, Youth Without Youth, and the, the review in the New York Times said, Rated R for nudity and metaphysics. <laughs> and so we're getting into a little mathematics here, which is also deserves a, a rating of R. But it doesn't get much more complicated than this, and it'll be over soon. So if you bear with me here. Um, so that's a funny thing. The, that jump from minus infinity to zero is just as funny as Titius's jump from zero to one. And, in fact, it's there for the same reason. We'll, we'll talk about that in a sec. Pretty soon, uh, 20 years after that, uh, the astronomer Herschel discovered the planet, uh, to the delight of seventh grade boys everywhere, Uranus, <laughs> or Uranus, uh, and it fit in the pattern. And then 20 years after that, an Italian astronomer discovered the center of the asteroid belt. Uh, he hadn't yet discovered the asteroid belt, he just discovered the biggest one, uh, which he named after the god of Sicily, Ceres. And these are the first telescopic planets ever discovered. Everything before was naked eye stuff in, in terms of planets. Um, so this was a kind of a monumental shift in human awareness of our place in, in the universe. 
So there's the law, the way, or the observation, the way it was when Bode took it under his wing. And by, the 18, by 1800, uh, these things had slotted right in with uh, pretty stunning accuracy, 1.2, 2.1. And it was at that point that the, uh, the crown of law was uh, positioned on the head of this observation because it fit, the, it was descriptive of what was known at the time that it was formulated and it predicted certain things and those things became true. So it was both descriptive and predictive, which is one of the ways that we get interested in these things. And, and for a few years, it was called a law and Bode, happily lived for another 20 years or so, uh, happily having a law named, named after him. This new planet was a little wobbly um, and the speculation began to grow that there might be something else out there. Now they, they had smelled blood and let's find another planet. So they began looking at the next iteration of the law at N where, where the, the exponent is seven. And they discovered Neptune in 1846, but Neptune didn't fit by a large margin. It was much too far in uh, and it disobeyed the law. And it was at this point that the knives uh, came out from under the cloaks and uh, the law began its long slide into oblivion and ignominy. So, so much so that in 1930, when Pluto was discovered, nobody cared to observe that it fit the place where Pluto, uh, where Neptune was supposed to fit. Mm -hmm. And I'm uh, temperamentally a champion of underdogs. I, I love this kind of stuff. So I, I came across this, uh, the, the, the rudiments of the history of this law in the mid-1990s. And it plunged me down a rabbit hole, and I, part of my brain has been scurrying around in those tunnels and corridors for the last two decades. Um, and by the time I was too far in to do anything about it, I thought, well, what if we just said, nine out of 10 isn't bad. <laughs> Let's say that Neptune, for some reason that we don't know yet, Neptune is uh, a bad boy and we'll put the bad boy in detention and keep a running list of uh, other bad boys that we might encounter, no bad girls, and uh, see, see if there's any commonality to them later on. This uh, genius, uh, Carl Gauss, who was known as the Mozart of mathematics, he actually made his bones, his reputation was based on uh, Bode's law um, in, a, in the sense that the, the Italian astronomer Piazzi had discovered Ceres but only was able to observe it for three days before it fell into the glare of the sun. And by the time, and then he fell sick, uh, and by the time he recovered, uh, he couldn't find Ceres anymore. And so Gauss came to the rescue. He was a young man of 23 or something at the time. And he developed a branch of mathematics uh, known as the, the, something of the least squared, the process of least squares, which allowed you to identify an orbit out of, out of very little information. And sure enough, that uh, allowed Piazzi and other astronomers to locate 
series again. But Gauss uh, observed about Bode's law a number of things. That, um, what is that jump doing there? It doesn't, there's no reason mathematically for it to be there. So I smell something funny, Gauss would say. And this is the, the jump from minus infinity to zero. So further along down the rabbit hole as I was, I said, well, what would happen if we just removed it? Just by fiat, we say, let it be whatever it wants to be, any number from minus infinity to plus infinity, which is a very exhilarating thing to, to do, to tangle with infinities. Um, but once you do that, here's what happens. There are the orbits that are predicted by the original Titius bow. They're very beautiful, kind of uh, looks like a uh, archery practice. But if the new formula does this, it generates a whole series of increasingly uh, <laughs> close together orbits that approach a limit. And appropriately so, because we're dealing with uh, an exponential value, a geometric series, because of the uh, exponent that's hovering above two. So there it is the way it was, and there it is the way it might be. A closer look at it would look something like this. So there's Venus uh, in its orbit, and Mercury right at the margin of the origin of these orbits. And there are these other, what you might call virtual orbits, uh, potentially candidates, but there's nobody to occupy them. So as we get into other systems, will we see these orbits being occupied? So that's a, a dangling question at the moment. Gauss's other observation was, what's with all the numbers? You're only describing, at that time, eight objects, and you've got four seemingly arbitrary numbers that's a piece of cake for a mathematician. You, you, can, do, you can choose anything. Birds uh, uh, sitting on a wire. If there are eight birds and you allow me to make some formula with four arbitrary constants, I can, I can do it. So his observation was you have to have fewer numbers in the formula. So I went even further down the rabbit hole and here's a side angle of those orbits. The peculiarity of the formula is that Earth has a value of one. And we, we intuitively think, what's the matter with that? Well, because it's our home. We're, we're one, of course. <laughs> uh, but it's mathematically a little strange because, as you can see, this is a, a, what's called an exponential geometric series. And we're somewhere out in the series. So, and everything is now being compared to us who are somewhere midway in the series. In that vein, if we are one, then Mercury is 0.4. Its orbit is 40% of the distance of the Earth's distance from the sun. You could just as easily invert it, which I did. Let's make Mercury, or the one, and see what happens. So now Earth is 2.5 times Mercury. In a sense, it's removing a sort of geocentric prejudice in the formula. Because we are Earth and we're happy to be here, we are one and we want to compare us to everybody else. But doing that complicates the formula. It both has to generate a series of numbers and then 
refer them to some arbitrary position in the middle of the whole series of numbers. This way, you don't have to do that. And as a result, you can just multiply the formula by 2.5, which is, uh, and if you do that, it relaxes into that formula. And we can relax it even further into that because we have removed that jump. We're dealing with an infinite series of numbers and it's just arbitrary where you wind up in them. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Walter Murch and Michael Lerner. If we had kept that jump, then that would have sort of shackled us from being able to do this. So it, it got very simple. There's only three numbers, and those numbers are kind of more elemental than four, two, three, and ten. So, but we're still wondering, what the hell, you know? That's the end of mathematics. You can relax. <laughs> and to further the relaxation, there's a musical interlude here. And you'll see the purpose for that in a second. Music is about the number of vibrations of something, a violin string or the air column of a flute. And depending on how many vibrations per second, we give those a name in music. In this case, this is E. And let's pick another one. C. And the two of them together are an interval. If we had three together, it would be a chord. And the ratio of the two elements of the interval is a number, 1.6. We can represent that ratio graphically by drawing a circle. So here's a circle whose radius is 330-somethings let's say pixels or inches or meters, it doesn't, doesn't matter. And we're gonna surround it with another circle whose radius is 528, same units, and that's a graphic representation of that interval. Here's another interval. The circles are closer together, and so the ratio is not 1.6, but 125, and it's F and A. Because I mix music for a, a living, I began to think, hmm, what's going on here? And I looked at that diagram that I showed you earlier. There's the sun, and there are these, dis these orbits that start at a certain distance, which I called beta for bode, uh, and then they get progressively further and further apart. But if you erase the sun, you're left with something that to a musician is very familiar because it's the series of octaves. And if we were to algebraize octaves, you'd say the octaves of any note, you can calculate by multiplying the frequency of that note times two to the n, two to some value, integer value, and the definition of that is minus infinity to plus infinity. So it's Bodian in nature, and just so we can relax some more, here is an example of uh, octaves. 
if n is minus two, you get 110. If, if the note is 440 and n is minus two, you get 110. If n is minus one, you get 220. If n is zero, you get 440. If n is one, uh, you get 880, uh, and so on. And it sounds like this. Here are four circles. And those are the orbits of the moons of Jupiter. So if anyone ever asks you, what do the moons of Jupiter sound like? Mm. You can uh, hear that chord. I'm, I should say they don't, make any noise at all. Uh, nobody in space, nobody hears you scream. Um, and this is different from the, the classical ancient world concept of the music of the spheres because Pythagoras and others believed that the planets were carried around in crystal clear spheres made of something they called the quintessence, the fifth element. And as those solid but transparent spheres rubbed against each other, they made a noise, uh, music, and because they moved at different speeds, they made a music of the spheres. This is not that. This is simply comparing our orbital ratios calculated by the average distance of the moons from Jupiter and transposing those into vibrations per second. If we can do that, we can also do this. The red line is the predicted orbit, the black line is its actual orbit. And what you're hearing is the, the musical value of the prediction. The reality, if I played that, would not sound so uh, so pleasant, mm. because Mars, you can see, is about 4% further in, and in musical terms, that's more than a semitone. So it, it would have a, uh, a clashing sound to it. But here we get back to the, the sort of the sunflower metaphor, mm. that what, what, what I'm playing here musically is sort of the DNA underneath, and what the reality is, is we'll try as best we can to... to, to center ourselves in that landscape, that hypothetical landscape. And here are the, the next series of planets. I, I should add that uh, Jupiter's moons nicely actually do sound like I just played them because they adhere within like a quarter of a percent to the underlying landscape. Mm. And here's everything together. Mm. 
to give some metaphorical idea of what's going on. I've, I've been drawing these orbits as lines, which makes you think that the planet is kind of like a, a trolley trying to get on a track. It's better to think of them as statistical undulations and like a ball bearing in a roulette wheel, the, the planets or the objects are scooting around the valleys of these uh, uh, statistical undulations. And they're doing the best they can. They're influenced by other things. With no, no question, Mars is influenced by Earth, which is 10 times the mass of Mars. And so it's kind of scrunched in a little bit from where it would otherwise be. And uh, uh, similar uh, kind of observations. The, 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 the center point of the troughs is that, that formula. That formula predicts the center point of the troughs. That the orbits begin at a certain distance, beta, and then they, uh, which is the one in that formula, and then the 2n, meaning they're doubling each time, and then the three gets you uh, from the crests down into the troughs. If you want the formula for the crests, which is also interesting to talk about, then you just drop the three. So it's even an even simpler formula. That red formula would be, if you wanted to say, where, where would I be least likely to find planets in a system? That's the formula that you would look at. And so like dust uh, kind of uh, lining themselves in the creases of a piece of furniture, the planets, uh, Jupiter and the asteroids, and further out also fall statistically. Uh, I'm not saying that this is anything that looks reality out there, but statistically they fall into these troughs. All right, uh, lastly, there's too few orbits, uh, Gauss would say. Uh, after his time, we, we added Neptune and Pluto. Neptune has its own problems, Pluto fit. So, Let's see if we can go to other systems and see something. Here's Jupiter, and there are the four Galilean moons, the big guys, but there are, there's a huge cloud of astronomical flies around Jupiter. 67 moons all around them, 63, sorry. And most of them are very small. So I said, just to get a sense of uh, the landscape uh, here and not to drive myself crazy, let's concentrate on moons that are 200 kilometers in diameter or greater. To give you a sense of that, that's Jupiter on the left. Here's a 200 kilometer moon. The, the four Galilean moons look like that. And Earth looks like that. And our moon looks like that. So 200 kilometers is small. If we do that and we do the spreadsheet, that's what we get. There's an agreement in Bode very close to um, the three moons, but there's one missing. Io falls midway between two predicted orbits, which is sort of what Neptune does. So we add Io to the detention, and we'll get back to it. Now, here are those virtual orbits that I talked about. 
And uh, when we go out to Saturn, we have a, a collection of uh, five 200-kilometer uh, moons. And here are three of them. Dione fits the Venus orbit. Tethys and Enceladus fit these virtual orbits that in the solar system are unoccupied, but in the Saturn system are actually populated. And here's the spreadsheet for that. And their agreement is 101.8% and 100.3%. When we go out to uh, Uranus, the next planet, Ariel fits the Venus orbit and Miranda fits one of the other uh, virtual orbits. So this is uh, not quite a smoking gun, but it's something that makes you smell uh, uh, a sense of uh, the pursuit. Here's the spreadsheet for Uranus. It has orbit uh, planets in the Venus-Earth-Mars orbits, but it also has one of these virtual orbits occupied at 100% uh, accuracy. But if we lower the standards and say, okay, you guys, you small guys can come in, here are the inner moons of Saturn, and the, the value of n, you can see here, is diminishing down to point minus 8, so very small. Uh, but you get this kind of agreement, 100.1, 100.1, 99.5, 101.8, and, and so on. And same thing for Uranus, um, these small moons. So, in summary, if we looked at all of the, the big objects, not, not the small ones, uh, although I, I can do that too, uh, but the, the big, big ones, there are 27 uh, objects fit Titius Bode, 36 is the total. So there are nine, that nine renegades, nine, nine objects in detention. What was curious to me, and I certainly didn't go looking for this, is that in each system, the Earth equivalent orbit is occupied. The Earth equivalent orbit is what you might call a very fertile orbit. It's kind of a mama bear orbit. It's neither too far out or too far in. It's just kind of nice. I don't know what to make of that, but there you see it. Each, each, uh, each system has a, the Earth equivalent orbit is occupied. Here are the renegades at the end. So Neptune is the only planet. Everyone else is a moon. And if we uh, did a kind of collective summary of the divergence, there, there are the, the planets that agree with Bode, and they're all clustering around their individual Bode centers. And I, I just superimposed everything to give you a sense of the clustering. Venus and Mars are about 3.5% on either side of the, the zero. The asteroids, the series fits the closest of everything. And there are the moons also clustering around their hypothetical bode node, you might say. And here are the renegades, and they cluster around the 50% mark. Again, I don't know what to make of this. Uh, it, the distance between the node that has the clustering and the midpoint node, that's the arithmetic midpoint, that distance is actually the duplication of the distance between one node and the previous node. So it, it's almost as if there's a kind of stuttering effect that they just get caught on some little declination that doesn't yet uh, obey Bode's law. 
but uh, to be further investigated. That's the spreadsheet uh, for I.O., uh, just as an example of showing you that, that if, if you allow the midpoint significance, then it, it hits the midpoint with uh, less than 1% deviation. Uh, so of those nine, four are, even still they're renegades, they cluster like this. And they're at the midpoint of the midpoint. Mm -hmm. You can obviously slice things too fine and then you get start to get confused, but I just show that for what it's worth. As I said, uh, a serious paper submitted by astronomers with a PhD, if it had the word Titius Bode in it, it was not accepted. But these two brave souls in Australia a couple of years ago handed in a paper to the Royal Astronomical, the Bulletin of the Royal Astronomical Society and in England, and it was accepted, which uh, was astonishing. And what they noticed, looking at data from the Kepler Space Telescope, which was launched back in 2009, uh, which is dedicated exclusively to looking for exoplanets. And this is slightly outdated now. It's many more than a 1,000. Uh, but combing through that data, they found, and this is what, what a peer-reviewed paper about Titius Mode looks like, uh, what they found was that of the 60 so, 65 or so four-planet systems that they observed, they found Titius Bode showing up in 96% of them. Their formula is a cousin of my formula. It looks different, uh, and it is different. The A, though, is the equivalent of my beta. It's like, the, where do you start? and then multiply that by a value C, and they allow uh, themselves to, to give C a different value for each system. I'm, I'm saying two, and that's uh, what, you've, what you've been seeing is what I get when I put two in there. They would look at an exoplanet and allow uh, that number to be something different, uh, perhaps uh, 1.54 or 2.2 or, or whatever. So it's experimentally determined. And then the N uh, takes that number and makes it into this uh, exponential, uh, in exponentially increasing value. Uh, and they, they say N goes from zero. It, it's all of the integers, all of the positive integers, including zero. So predictably, they published their paper a couple of years ago, and then there was a counter paper from somebody, I think, at MIT or Harvard saying, poo-poo, this is silly uh, for these reasons. And then they countered with another paper that made their numbers even better. So anyway, there's a, there's a dialogue happening now uh, on these terms. How it will all work out is uh, anyone's guess. Um, the... What, what you can take away as certain from what I've been showing you is that the simplified Bode algorithm is that. that. That is better than what they had in the 18th century because without them really realizing it, in the 18th century, they had modified the formula to fit the facts. 
The facts are that there are no planets between Mercury and Venus, and so they put a little jump in there, and that made the formula fit the facts. What I've done is say, no, no, you can't do that. Uh, they also felt that any orbit that was predicted had to be occupied, and I'm not saying uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying sometimes the orbits are occupied and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're fertile and sometimes they're not. And sometimes there are rogue planets uh, or moons that fall at the midway point. We should investigate this further. I should also say that that midway point produces something musical. If I include Neptune in this, it also is uh, very uh, musically pleasing. Um, so that's, there's lots more to say, and you can, if you get the book, there's, you can read more about the further uh, analysis, but that's uh, basically uh, it. Thank you, Walter. Um, and we'll talk a bit, and then I'll open it up for questions. So one of the, the l let me just say that for the purposes of this conversation, you've, you've greatly simplified the deep, deep research that you have done into this. And, um, but just at the start, the, um, I'm, struck, I'm struck by how beautiful this is. It's not only musical, it's beautiful. And so to me, the simple fact that there is this updated harmony of the spheres right. is an exquisitely beautiful reality. And it's, to me, it says something about the nature of the universe. I, 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 yeah, I can go there. Yeah. It, what we've also discovered now because of Kepler and Hubble and all of these telescopes is that our system is pretty special. Mm -hmm. We haven't found the solar system duplicated out there. Mm -hmm. Far from it. Um, a lot of the systems have what are called hot Jupiters, meaning here's a star, and very close to the star is something about the size of Jupiter that's rocketing around the star in five days or something. Mm -hmm. Are those stable systems? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think we're looking at them... Uh, at a moment in their history, but if we came back uh, a million years later, I don't know that that planet would be in that position, or 10 million years later. These are seconds in terms of the duration of the, of the universe. So, but the unique thing about our system that we are getting now is that it is fairly, it's unreasonably stable, according to uh, people who've looked into this system over the last 200 years. Why is it as stable as it is? And uh, this is pure speculation, but it may be stable because for historical and accidental reasons, it is fitting that, that kind of underlying structure that, that, that the, the, the DNA, in a sense, wants it to be. And if, if systems fit that structure more or less, with some exceptions like Neptune, we don't know what's happening with Neptune, uh, then in the long term they will be stable, and that's certainly good for the evolution of complex life uh, and intelligent life. We, we need great stability in, 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 in the figures of hundreds of millions of years, in fact billions of years, of, of relative stability to allow us to become what we have become. And, and that was the second thing I wanted to raise, which is that this harmonious relationship of planets around a star 
uh, seems to be particularly propitious for life, which you, yes. what you just said. Right. But then you go on to say that the position of the earth is one that it seems to be always filled in each right. of these structures. Yeah. So that it would be very interesting to explore whether the ideas that uh, astrophysicists are developing about the places where right. life develops in fact fall into this earth place right. around stars. Right. Also, um, we didn't get into in this presentation, you, you, you pointed out uh, what is, uh, at least as a hypothesis. Um, but the question of why this takes place right. is another one that you've thought right. about, whether this yeah. is the influence of dark matter, whether it is a, a kink in space-time. Can you talk a little about the hypotheses about why? Yeah, I mean, this pushes me out of my comfort zone yes, at the I end of the gangplank uh, because I'm just not capable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. Uh, it's above my pay grade, so to speak. I'm. Mm -hmm. I'm. I'm basically taking a law that was tossed into the rubbish bin mm -hmm. and, and which mainstream astrophysics find kind of smelly mm -hmm. um, and cleaned it up and said, mm -hmm. let's take another look at it using all of this new data. Because it was thrown away when we had very little data. Mm -hmm. And it was thrown away at a time when the model for the solar system was a clockwork model. And each of the orbits are kind of like meshing gears. Mm -hmm. And so if you found a planet like Neptune that didn't mesh, then throw out the whole clock or, or throw out the model that you're trying to uh, use to simulate the solar system. And we don't think that way anymore. We think because now we have so much data and we have so many flowers to compare in a sense that uh, we can look at this more statistically and we can allow orbits to be unoccupied and we can allow uh, planets to not fit uh, mm -hmm. if, 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 if it works out statistically. But if you had that drawing, and I, I should probably make it at some point, if you had that drawing uh, with, the, with the declination but without the ripples in it, that's perfectly accepted. That's Einsteinian distortion of space-time. You know, the, the, the metaphor that is used frequently is think of the Earth or think of the sun as a bowling ball and put the bowling ball on the trampoline. That's how the sun distorts space-time. It, it's inaccurate because it, it's like the distortion of a two-dimensional fabric rather than three-dimensional or four-dimensional space-time, but it, it gets the idea. So... What Bode's law says essentially is, okay, there is a distortion, but there is also a, a rippling that follows some kind of interesting pattern. And so the, the planets would uh, fit into those uh, undulations. And this, this has a certain respectability in physics. This is called metastability. Um, I worked on this film, The Particle Fever, about the Higgs boson, and the Higgs boson is perched in a metastable state, um, which means if it gets bumped by something, it falls into a different place, which would be catastrophic for us, but we wouldn't know it because we'd all just disappear. Um, anyway, the, um, the, these, these sort of ledges would be metastable states, and they would be orbits. What is that thing? Uh, and it's, it, it, it is, is it dark matter? Uh, we know or we are speculating now that the, the galaxy, the, all galaxies, Milky Way galaxy, 
is suffused by something called dark matter, and there is six. There are six dark matter, matter particles for every particle of you or me or the sun or the earth, what's called luminous matter. Um, and that that has a gravitational effect on the how the Milky Way does what it does. Does dark matter have an influence on how the solar system does what it does? Perhaps. Um, but that's all uh, to be further investigated. Is it something else that we don't know about? I, I was just reading Lisa Randall's book. Uh, she's a physicist at astrophysicist at Harvard um, uh, and wrote a book called uh, Dark Matter and Dinosaurs, and she's speculating that the, the presence of a layer of dark matter, of super dense dark matter in the galaxy, as the solar system periodically, every 33 million years, loops through this super dense layer of dark matter, uh, Objects that are floating around out there, comets and asteroids, get disturbed and start to pelt the Earth and occasionally kill things like the dinosaurs. We're coming up for another one of those uh, periods, so watch out, hold your hat. Um, anyway, she... She's, when is that due, the next uh, uh, I think Trump is uh, presaging that. No, seriously. When no, very soon. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, in, in... Within a few million years? Maybe tomorrow. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yes, it... it, it uh, the period uh, is every 33 million years. The dinosaurs were killed 66 million years okay. ago. so we're coming so we, up So the Earth yeah. passed through one, and we're going through another mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. um, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, her, her point is that we call... We say dark matter... And we say dark matter in the same way that in the 19th century they used to call Africa the dark continent. Mm -hmm. It just means there's lots we don't know, mm -hmm. dark in terms of ignorance. But she speculates that there are different kinds of dark matter, just as there are particles of, you know, these particles are different particles, electrons and quarks and all of those uh, neutrinos and everything, she's speculating that there are different kinds of dark matter and there are particularly dense kinds and lighter kinds. And Anyway, it, it uh, fascinating. But dark matter is pretty well established, right, or not? In yeah, words, nobody has seen dark matter. In, right. Do in, in in, in, you remember that picture that I showed right at the beginning of the three planets? That's, we're looking at the planets. But as opposed to string theory, for example. Yeah, string, string theory is a whole it's other a story. It's a hypothesis, whereas dark matter is relatively well yeah, established. Yeah, but we only know of dark matter because galaxies behave in a strange way. Right. Uh, they behave as if they're uh, in aspic, so to speak. That the, the stars are held by something mm -hmm. much greater than their own mass. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Walter Murch and Michael Lerner. And so the possibility exists that what you're seeing here uh, uh, represents the action of dark matter as one of many possibilities. Yeah, if, again, this is me way out on the Right, I understand that. And, and uh, it, it's, it's a metaphorical, in any case, it's a metaphorical observation, it's just in, as in as the as same as way as that yeah. the bowling ball and the trampoline is a metaphor. Uh, you and Wexler uh, cite uh, someone whose name I can't remember, uh, that you describe it as an as-if hypothesis. Right, yeah. this, this uh, philosopher uh, in the early... 
20th century named Weihinger, mm-hmm. German. He was very influenced by Kant, but he wrote a book called The Philosophy of As If, and uh, it's as if something is like this. And the strange thing is that we do this periodically. We say, well, it's, it's as if something is like that, and sure enough, we turn around the corner and suddenly there it is. That, that's how what happened with quantum mechanics. Planck in 1900 says, it's as if nature is quantized. That's ridiculous, but he, he said, I did it out of desperation. <laughs> and then within five years, Einstein proved that, yes, with the, with the photon effect, that it is quantized. So one of the beautiful things about Wexler's book, as I said, is that having presented your work and then presenting the objections from astrophysicists and emailing them to you and you respond and so on and so forth. So there's this extraordinary dialogue happening between you and the critics. And one of the things that Wexler does is to look at the structure of uh, astrophysics in the universities and how uh, the fact that that, uh, the scientific establishment keeps cranking out more and more PhDs and uh, administrative processes mean that the universities that are funded to do this work are characterized by certain forms of groupthink, and that the groupthink is an extraordinarily powerful factor, right. uh, and that this means that, uh, that uh, people, amateurs, so-called amateurs work, working outside of the groupthink, uh, get a very, very hostile response. And so he looks at the question of why you and many others, including many people who are cranks in some deep sense of the word, um, are rejected uh, by the very structure of astrophysics and many other academic disciplines. Yeah, and and that's kind of as it has to be. It's a little like the discussion of apophenia. Apophenia is the tendency of human beings to see patterns pushed too far. Right. And... The, 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 there is a need for uh, human knowledge to be protected from, uh, you know, for, for true facts to be protected from false facts. No. And we need that, otherwise everything goes apart. And sometimes things get, uh, you know, slightly bad things happen as a result of that, but the, the border uh, to protect the knowledge in the middle is is very important. So I'm, I, I, I don't, I don't, I am not, and I don't think of myself as somebody rattling the cages of my jail, mm-hmm. saying, why won't you talk to me? I'm, I'm perfectly happy doing what I've been doing. It seems as if, uh, with people like the folks in Australia, that some movement is beginning to happen there. How it will turn out, uh, I don't know, but I've, I've been very happy doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, in a sense, I'm freer to think these kind of things than if I was shackled mm-hmm. to... Um, a, a, the more formal requirements of peer-reviewed papers. At, at some point, maybe that will happen. Um, uh, the, the physicist that we were talking to at, at UC Santa Cruz uh, said, you know, come on down and let's, let's talk. So I'd like uh, to draw a parallel in the fields with which I've worked for the last 40 years and then uh, pose a question to you about the anthropic principle and ask if you've thought much about that. But, but let me just draw the parallel first. I've spent 40 years on the frontiers of mind-body health. And when I started, I thought that at a certain point, these things would move into the mainstream. And to some degree, over the last 40 years, they have moved into the mainstream. 
But what has struck me more and more is that more and more of the things that are clinically observable um, uh, don't necessarily move all the way into the mainstream. They develop their own uh, parallel system of knowledge. So, for example, the work of Dr. Dean Ornish on heart disease. Ornish has demonstrated that you can reverse coronary artery disease using lifestyle therapies. Mm -hmm. And there are a series of other things like that so that the whole field of integrative medicine and mind-body health, rather than merging with the mind, uh, you know, to some degree it merges, but it also establishes a kind of a parallel track. And the two exist in a certain tension, but also with different, you know, groups of people clustered as you might say, around troughs in, right. in the system. Yeah. Uh, so my observation is that while you're not rattling the cages of a cell, that you are happy to be in dialogue and free to think this way, nonetheless, um, in extraordinarily important work can take place in these parallel universes of integrative medicine, for example, mm-hmm. and be uh, tremendously important to people um, um, whereas in astrophysics, there's not necessarily the same, you know, direct uh, sort of necessary power right. for human life. Yeah, uh, I was reading an article yeah. by uh, Freeman Dyson, yeah. a physicist who was at yeah. the Center for Advanced Study right. in uh, Princeton, and he said, I never got a PhD. Right. And I'm so happy I never got a PhD. Right. And he went on about you know, he, he took out a stick and beat the concept of PhD to a pulp. I mean, that's one particular view, but it, it's fascinating that somebody who is so, uh, you know, renowned within the uh, physics community, working at the Center for Advanced Study, you know, it, it doesn't have a PhD and says what he says about the, the PhD process and how it channels people into thinking um, Group think. with constraint. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want to ask you about the anthropic principle. There's a strong and a weak anthropic principle, but basically the idea is that the universe is designed to support life. And had it been tweaked one way or a little bit or another, it wouldn't have supported life. And the anthropic principle drove Stephen Hawking and others mad because they uh, couldn't believe that's, you know, it sounded too much like, quote, intelligent design. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't stand the possibility that the universe was designed to support life. And so that led, in, among, in, among other factors, to these ideas of, of multiple other universes which connected to string theory and so forth. Right. But the only observable universe, I mean, string theory is, is uh, you know, uh, an observation without a lot of factual support. The only observable universe that we have supports either the strong or weak anthropic principle to some mm-hmm. degree. So since you think about these kinds of things, I would like to ask you what reflections you've had on the anthropic principle and uh, what you make of it. They, uh, it was d- uh, discussed in, in the film Particle Fever mm-hmm. because it, uh, the anthropic principle basically says, here we are. Uh, are we here because uh, of accident, or is it inevitable? Not human beings so much as as the the, the possibility of life, and then mm-hmm. complex life, and then ultimately intelligent life. The 
There, there are something like 20 parameters in, in physics that have no explanation. Why is the, does the electron have the mass as it does? What does the mass of the, what, what is the value of the cosmological constant? And there are about 20 numbers that we, we just have to accept them as being given. And what we discovered over the last 50 years or so is that if those numbers changed by even a tiny degree, the universe would have run away with itself or imploded much quickly, that, that were balanced on an incredibly fine thread. And uh, this causes the human mind to go do all kinds of somersaults. Why should it be this? And is it the case that uh, there are multiple universes, whatever that means, and we are one flower in this fantastic tree uh, of the universe, and our flower just happens to have the values that it does. That's just the way the... the, the it's numbers, random chance. It's a random chance, and it came out this way in our system, and that's why we're here. And establishment uh, uh, astronomers... Many of them don't like it because it basically slams the door on further explanation, explorations. Like, they don't those, like those are just the numbers. They, they don't like the idea that there are many universes or they don't like the single universe? Uh, they, they don't like uh, the anthropic explanation right. for it. No, they don't. Um, some, perfectly, some others that are just as, just as good like it. So it, it's... Uh, what is your hunch? Um, hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm interested, just because of the way the human mind works, I'm interested in this concept of other universes. I, See, I I'm, I'm inclined to be interested in the possibility that this is it, and yeah. not that I want to close the door. If, if, right. if somebody demonstrates, I mean, after all this work on string theory, right. you know, in, in Wexler's book, uh, he talks about one uh, astrophysicist um, who went to two conferences in a row. Right. One was a conference on string theory by the you know, establishment, and the other was a very alternative conference. Right. And he or she wondered which was more far out, the alternative right. conference or the string theory conference. Right. And so to me, um, the beauty of your uh, sort of resuscitation of Titus Bode theory uh, and the kind of elegance and beauty and the fact that that harmonic I mean, when you listen to the harmonic, what does it sound like? It sounds like ohm, right? right. It sounds like the, 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 the tone that mystics say is at the heart of the universe. I mean, it sounds exactly like mm -hmm. it. And so to me, the beauty of that in conjunction with another regularity, if you will, which yeah. is the stronger weak anthropic principle, uh, suggests to me, and again, this is because I'm a pragmatic mystic and not... Uh, giving right. you any credit or, or, or shame for this, um, it suggests to me that perhaps there is some form of intelligence that animates a living universe. Mm -hmm. That, in fact, we are, are witnessing something of exquisite beauty. And, uh, you know, as uh, Thomas Berry believes, that we are the universe looking back at itself. Right. Yeah. And seeing this exquisite beauty yeah. and this almost religious sense of wholeness. Now, I don't, I don't offer that to you as something that you believe, but it nourishes right. that for me. 
No, no, and, and it does to me too. Yeah. I, I, um, the, the irony, in a sense, is that science over the last certainly 200 years uh, has demonstrated that the, uh, that the universe is organized as a series of nested Russian dolls. Mm -hmm. It's hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And that you have quarks that come together to create protons and neutrons, and then protons and neutrons attract electrons, and so atoms are created, mm -hmm. and then atoms come together to create molecules. And there, at each stage, there are qualities that emerge that are not present in the lower stages. Mm -hmm. So if you take two rather uh, difficult uh, substances, uh, sodium and chlorine, you don't want to get too close to either of them, but if you put them together, you get salt. And salt does not exist in either sodium or chlorine. And if you were to anthropomorphize uh, and go down and talk to sodium and chlorine, how is it down there? How is it going? And they would talk about stuff at the sodium-chlorine level, but they would not be aware that of anything called salt, of which they are actually a part. So you keep going up through molecules and crystals and you know cells and organs and living beings and the is is it inconceivable that is it conceivable that we in our awareness of the world of the universe that the way it is that we are the lid and there's nothing there's no hierarchy above us mm. I, I doubt it uh, there seems to be this idea or, or the, if you run with this idea it's like it's very it's conceptually impossible to think up uh, we humans with great effort and cleverness have managed to see down the ladder, but it's very hard to see up. Impossible, let's say. If, if a dog is undergoing vivisection, can you talk to the dog about how important this is? And don't, don't worry, this is really good in the large sense. No, the dog wonders, why are you doing this to me? Mm -hmm. And um, so I... I speculate that there is a role for consciousness to play, that uh, one function of consciousness uh, and one analysis of it is that it's like the antlers of the Irish elk, that it's a thing that we have uh, arrived at for various reasons and we use it to get a better advantage for ourselves. But like the Irish elk's antlers, eventually it gets caught in a growth trap the antlers of the Irish elk kept getting bigger and bigger over thousands of years uh, because of sexual selection. The girls liked the guys with the big antlers, but eventually the antlers got so big, they were bigger than the average distances between the forests in Ireland, and so the species went extinct. Um, is that what consciousness is? Or were we burdened with that? Or is consciousness something that is simply waiting for an opportunity to manifest itself. There is, was a point in the history of the universe when salt was impossible because the heat of the universe was so intense that atoms couldn't come together to make molecules. But salt emerged when the universe, when the conditions were right for it, and suddenly there was salt. But there was no life. And then eventually there was conditions were right that there was bacterial life. And then complex life and, and so on. When you talk about um, the different levels, and at each level there's a degree of freedom that is not uh, right. not that doesn't 
That sounds like Michael Polanyi's work yeah. on uh, yeah. structures uh, that at each level there's an, a, a degree of freedom right. of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, and one other thing, just coming back to the beauty of this, because the the harmony of of the 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 harmony that you observe, particularly around stars where the Earth orbit is always filled, and that is again suggestive uh, that that is a place where life uh, might exist. Um, the beauty of that evokes for human beings um, a sense of awe, a mm -hmm. sense of power, and we like it. We, in other words, that that sound and the geometric representations and mathematical uh, and musical representations, we like that. We even love it. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that we love that, if there is a kind of a microcosm-macrocosm relationship, mm -hmm. um, suggests again that that intelligence that might inhabit a um, anthropically designed universe may be based in some fundamental sense on love, on attraction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, as a practical mystic with a kind of neoplatonic right. orientation, I love these facts, mm -hmm. you know? And um, I know you have to be careful, but I don't have to be careful about them. Right. I mean, I have to be less careful than the right. astrophysicist down at Santa Cruz, and right. you have to be less right. careful than me. So I want to step back from this to some of the other things I know that you've been interested in and that we've discussed from time to time. Uh, the first thing, the first conversation I ever had with you was a set of observations that you made about bees. And Wexler points out that you've been fascinated by bees for a long time. Right, right. And if I remember it correctly, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you had an observation with bees that if you, if you move their hive in a regular way right. uh, from one place to another, there's a point at which the bees adopt and will fly to the place where they next expect you to put the hive. Right, it, it's a little different than that. Could it, you say it, it for me? You, sure, it, it's, uh, it was an experiment that was done uh, a number of years ago. Uh, a beehive at a certain location and then maybe 100 yards away, mm -hmm. a source of sugar water mm -hmm. was placed. In the morning, the bees came out and they did their normal thing, looking all over, mm -hmm. and one bee happened to find the sugar water the bee went back to the hive, said, look, and he did his little dance, or she did her, her little dance, mm -hmm. and they all came, drank the sugar water, came back to the hive, night fell. The diabolically inclined scientist, biologist, <laughs> took a new sugar water and moved it 50 yards perpendicular to the angle of flight. So next morning, the bees went right to where the sugar water was, and it wasn't there. So they were disappointed, and then they just started doing their normal thing, looking for flowers. A bee found the new location, went back, said, it's moved, and they went, they drank it deeply, they went back to their hive, night fell. The third day, they moved it another 50 yards in the same uh, linear direction. Now, the third day, the bees go to this second location, it isn't there, and now they just go to this 50 yards along the line because they've detected a pattern to it. And they drink deeply, they go back, 
Night falls, they move the nectar water again 50 yards. In that morning, the bees simply go to where it is. And if your three-year-old demonstrated such intelligence, you would say, uh, let's wave the flag for human logic and intelligence. But here are bees whose brain is the size of a grain of sand, collectively discriminating and doing logical deductions about behavior for a, a phenomenon that they never would have encountered in biological life. There is no, you know, spontaneously emerging big nectar that suddenly moves 50 yards every day. Um, so, they're, so what they're, does that tell you about bees? Well, and I mean, you can make the same kind of uh, analysis with the behavior of termites, mm -hmm. these, these collective uh, insect intelligences. It, it's, uh, it, it makes you think that the, there is not the, this kind of atomic, uh, each brain thinking for itself and deciding and coming to a conclusion and commuting this to everybody else. There's an element of that because of the bees dance. Mm -hmm. um, but that in, in a large sense, there, there is kind of a field, an energy field of intelligence that is uh, directing these bees in the same way that the individual neurons are moving around in our head. And, I mean, it's hard to think of it because it doesn't match anything that we know of scientifically. But if you think that way, again, just metaphorically, it starts to make the behavior of bees and termites and these other uh, collective intelligences who are, you know, astonishingly uh, creative uh, in, in an architectural sense uh, now you're also, and, and many other senses. You're also thinking about pyramids. Tell us a little about what you're thinking about pyramids. Uh, he's, he, he likes this gangplank. <laughs> we do too. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, uh, this, this is another uh, rabbit hole that I fell down, uh, and it's still in progress. I, I had some disappointments in it, uh, a number of months ago, and I'm still sort of chewing on it, wondering, did I do something wrong? Or, But uh, let me see how nutshelly I can make it. The Egyptians had three seasons, not four. They, there was the flood season, which was four months, and that is what we would call summer, where the sun is at maximum elevation, but you can't plant anything mm -hmm. in that environment because in the old days, it was just, flooded. So when the flood subsided after four months, the beginning of each of the, the beginning of each of their years was what we call uh, summer solstice, which was also coincidentally the beginning of the flood. So from summer solstice for four months, then the flood subside and now there is four months of planting and other related activities. At the end of the next four months, you harvest. So for four months, then there's harvest, and then the year begins again. And we know from architectural evidence at places like Abu Simbel that they organize their architecture such that significant events in a Stonehengean way happened on October 23rd and February 20th, which are the divisions in our, in our calendar. Those are the divisions between the, their seasons. The beginning of the planting season and the beginning of the harvest season. And the sun at dawn on October 23rd will shine all the way down the corridor at Abu Simbel and light up the uh, uh, statue at the end of this long corridor. 
and then it will also do it on February 20th. Tantalizingly, the, the, why did you build a huge great pyramid at where they built it? which is at 30 degrees by our reckoning, 30 degrees um, latitude. Well, at 30 degrees latitude, uh, on October 23rd, the sun is 52 degrees elevated at noon, which is exactly the elevation of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. So that during the summer, the sun is higher in the sky and at, during the day, the north face of the pyramid is getting sunlight. But every day, as, as the year gets shorter, uh, as you go into winter, the, sun, the noon sun is not quite as high each day. And on October 23rd, it is exactly aligned with the north face of the pyramid, and the north face of the pyramid does not light up. And then every day subsequently, it is in darkness, and then... Starting at winter solstice, it starts to come up again. And on February 20th, the north face of the pyramid lights up for the first time. Imagine the pyramid, the size of the pyramid, uh, you know, 400 plus feet tall, sheathed in white limestone. And it's in shadow, it's in shadow, it's in shadow. And then on February 20th, boom, it lights up. And that's like a big beacon that says harvest time. Mm. And then that can be seen for a long while. Yeah, and uh, Herodotus said that uh, you could see the, the 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 beacon. He said you could see the beacon of the pyramid from the mountains of Israel. Mm. It's you know it's it's very tall mm. and it's very bright, and you know it. It makes sense because why would you build something that tall? Well, you want to send the message out as far as possible. And um, why would you build it at that angle? Because that angle coincides with the angle of the sun on these two significant dates. The problem uh, that I ran into was it doesn't work. <laughs> and, uh, or at least it doesn't work according to the NASA website that I went on to, which the predicts, uh, tells, gives me the angle of the sun for any date, for any location on Earth going back 10,000 years or uh -huh. 10,000 years uh -huh. into the future. And so I'm, I'm still gnawing on that one. Maybe I'm doing something. It's not a very user-friendly website. Right. You know, it's just a very dense uh, field of numbers. I think I'm using it right. Um, but it, it, um, it's one of those kind of Kurt Vonnegutian tantalizing mm -hmm. ideas that I'm still reluctant to completely abandon. One final one, and then we'll open it up for, for questions. Uh, in a recent conversation, uh, you pointed out that 500 years ago um, or so, uh, human beings discovered science, which enormously exponentially increased our power over ourselves and the Earth. Right. But that there has been no moral equivalent uh, in terms of our exercise. Well, or, or insufficient equivalent? Insufficient. Uh, yeah, there, there's, I ran across, like apophenia, I ran mm. across a very useful word uh, called, uh, in biology, allometry, A-L-L-O-M-E-T-R-Y. Mm -hmm. And it's opposed to a, an opposite concept, which is isometry. And um, if I had a magic wand and there was a mouse on the floor... And if I touched the mouse with a magic wand and it became a, 
uh, it was a hundred times longer and wider and taller than it was, but all of the proportions of the mouse remained identical. That would be an isometric expansion of the mouse. If you did that, the mouse and and really physically did that, and not in a not in an alternate magical universe. The mouse would stand there for a while, finding it very hard to breathe, and then it would try to take a step. And when it put weight on its leg, the leg would break, and it would fall over, and half of its bones would break, and it would be dead within a few minutes, because. I've just enlarged the mouse to the size of an elephant. An elephant, uh, the bones of an elephant are 18% of its mass of the elephant. The bones of a mouse are 4% of the mass of a mouse. And so here's this giant mouse the size of an elephant and its bones are these fragile little toothpicks incapable of sustaining the weight of an elephant because of the physical laws of what you have just done. You've increased the volume of the mouse a million times by increasing its linear dimensions a hundred times. Mm. And the bones just can't keep up with that. So what's the parallel to the human problem is that in a sense, we were touched by the magic wand mm. in 1600. And science and technology has increased our destructive power and constructive power by, I don't know, throw a number at it, a, a billion times. What is the power of a hydrogen bomb compared to what an explosive was in 1600? Mm -hmm. uh, they've increased our powers of observation by a billion times. You know, we can talk with some confidence about what is the color of that strange little spot on the moon of Pluto? Mm -hmm. In 1600, they didn't know that Pluto existed. And now we can see with our super eyes the moon of Pluto mm -hmm. and lots of other things. And it has expanded our powers of communication, the, you know, this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I can confidently, Aggie's in London, and I can text Aggie, okay, I just finished at Commonweal, mm -hmm. but it's just a piece of little, you know, it's just a piece of metal talking through the electromagnetic field through, but, you know, for somebody in 1600, that would be, you know, the devil at work or magic or something. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Walter Murch and Michael Lerner. So we've expanded all of these things by this huge number, and yet our moral skeleton is, hasn't kept up with where we are. And we're, you know, we're beginning to see the effects uh, progressively on the, you know, what we call now that people are calling this the Anthropocene, mm -hmm. because the effect of human beings on Earth is now has a geological force to it, and yet, have we kept up morally with it? I mean, you you can talk a certain argument and say, no, we're even worse than we were back mm -hmm. then. On the other hand, we 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 got rid of slavery, or we we are making efforts in that direction. And we, we're trying not to have capital punishment. So there, there is some movement, but clearly with Trumpism, it's going in the opposite direction. So, uh, you know, to really, to be, are human beings going to be a permanent part of the earth uh, in, in some kind of balance? Well, if that's the case, and if we want to retain this magic wand increase in our powers, we have to develop some other kind of moral uh, support system than the one we have now. E.O. Wilson wrote a beautiful essay called Is Mankind Suicidal? in which he concluded that we might have done better if the dominant species had turned out to be some large form of ant. Uh, 
and, you know, like your bees, uh, that mm. if we had a kind of a collective moral capacity that we found within ourselves. Mm. I mean, the other thing that's, yeah. that's lurking, uh, you know, the, there's the Lisa Randall dinosaur effect, but we are at the end of the, this interglacial period. Right. Um, and um, which, which the, the glacial periods last somewhere around 80,000 years and the interglacials last about 12,000 years. Mm -hmm. So the glaciers began to melt at the last ice age about 12,000 years ago. So we're coming up for the end, for the beginning of the next ice age. And that's just due to the difference in the orbit of the Earth around the sun and the tilt of the Earth around the, the so-called Milankovitch cycle. And there's an interesting relationship between the coming uh, glacial ice age and global warming. Right. And whether uh, at some level... Yeah, we, we are not going to have a new ice age. I mean, that's how right. Anthropocene we have become. Right. exactly. The, the, the thickness of the carbon blanket now right. is so thick mm -hmm. that some permanent part of Earth's, Earth's history over the mm -hmm. last two million years is mm -hmm. now not going to happen, mm -hmm. and there is not going to be a new ice age. Mm -hmm. The, in, a, in a weird sense, the crisis of Trumpism might unleash something that will be good for our long-term mm -hmm. balanced survival. It might. It might. Uh, there's, there's a development that uh, scientists in Iceland and in Montana have discovered, a, to their astonishment, a way of capturing carbon from the atmosphere and solidifying it into limestone in a period of one or two years mm -hmm. rather than thousands of years, which it would happen naturally. Mm -hmm. And it's not a model that yet is economically meaningful, mm -hmm. but the science of it is now we know what's going on. It has something to do with the interaction of carbon dioxide and basalt, the, the earth, the, the, the stone that is mm -hmm. part of our mantle. There's lots of basalt, mm -hmm. and it could be, I mean, this is pure gangplank speculation, mm -hmm. but if we say Trump has pro produced a crisis and we have to push him to one side as a species and come up with something because of the intensity of the crisis, that we have to transition to some kind of more benign energy than fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we also have to not cook ourselves. Mm -hmm. But if we develop as a society, a global society, these tools that will allow us to turn carbon dioxide into limestone, which happens naturally. Mm -hmm. That's a natural part of the process. It's just nature works on scales of 100,000 years. We have to do it quicker. If we can do that, then we have our hands on a, uh, a knob that can adjust the thickness of the carbon blanket to whatever the problem happens to be. Let's say there's a huge volcano in Indonesia that uh, spouts out a huge burst of carbon dioxide. Well, we, we turn the knob. Mm -hmm. In a sense, we've got a thermostat for the, for the Earth. Just like in your home, you adjust the temperature to depend on what is happening outside. Mm -hmm. So if, do we want to be around in 5,000 years? 5,000 years is just as far in the future as the pyramids were in the past. Mm -hmm. I think we do want yeah. to be here. If we do, then actually that is something we have to develop. Coming back to Titus Bode and Lawrence Wexler's beautiful book about your work, Waves Passing in the Night, Walter Murch in the Land of the Astrophysicists, do you have enough sense of your own inner processes to know what proportion of your non-film uh, psychic energy <laughs> will continue to focus on Titus Bode and what, whether you're being drawn out? Do you have a sense of 
incipient completion about Titus Bode and moving into other areas, or do you think this will continue to preoccupy your inner space uh, for a long it, time? It, it's, it's really been hard to predict. I mean, there have been times in that 20-year period when I've thought, well, it's just crazy. You know, mm-hmm. what am I doing this for? Mm-hmm. And then something taps me on the shoulder and I get, I get, get sucked back, back into it again. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's enough now that I can have a dialogue with uh, Enrico down mm-hmm. at UCSC, mm-hmm. and he goes, well, da, 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 da. <laughs> uh, he's not, you know, holding his nose and shoving me out the door. He's inviting me back to talk to them. Um, so, um, I mean, th- their real problem is just the three letters L-A-W. They don't like it to be a law. Right. If you say... If it's a rule or a pattern. If it's a rule or, a, or an organizing principle, mm-hmm. then they kind of relax. Right. You know, but the law makes them crazy. So maybe you should excise law from right. that. And you know, I, I don't... Yeah, I, I just talk about it in a historical mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, but, wonderful. Yeah. So I want to open up for a few questions. If you'd say your name and keep it brief. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, I'm Ann. Um, I'm curious to know if you could apply this theory to uh, the atomic level and, and get the same harmonics. Yeah, the, the, there is a law uh, that generates um, uh, electron orbits around the proton. It's, it's actually kind of the reverse of this. It's two raised to various, I mean, it's various integers raised, uh, raised to uh, squared. So one squared, two squared, three squared will generate the, the center point of electron cloud orbits. So it, it's similar, but it looks different. It is mathematically different and it looks different. And com- certainly compared to the, the chaos of planets and moons, you know, you, you saw that uh, drawing of Jupiter's moons. The, uh, the, 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 our idea of the precision of, of the orbits around atoms uh, is, is that it's much more precise and invariant. Could any of that explain the, the behavior of the bees? The, which? the behavior of the bees, the collective behavior of the bees. I, I don't know. That, that's, uh, you know, if, if you run with this idea of a field effect of some gotcha. kind, you, you, you're, you're immediately talking about something like extrasensory perception, you know, that science at the moment doesn't recognize. It doesn't want to go there. It's kind of Bodian. I mean, the, the, the other, uh, well, I, I have something to say, but yeah. Howard? Go ahead. To follow the same line of thinking, uh, if you can apply this kind of formula to uh, humanity, where, you know, from the, the, the molecule to the human being to, right. the, to the planet, does it work? Does it hold? Where does human beings come? Are we number one? Are we point three? Or, or does it not work at all? I don't think it works. Uh, but I haven't gone there. You know, I'm, I'm just dealing with the sort of billiard game of, of planets around. But you, ha- you had another observation you wanted. Yeah, to make. Well, it, it's uh, uh, for the, the function of Bode's law for the last hundred plus years has been a, a kind of aversion therapy. And if you take Astronomy 101, about in the second month, uh, the, the teacher will bring out Bode's law out of a paper bag and then take a stick and beat it to a pulp <laughs> in front of you and uh, say, 
if you want to be astronomers, you can't believe in this, and you can't even think the way this thinks because it's numerology. Mm-hmm. And then they put the bloody fragments back into the bag, and you never think about it again. And for many years in biology, that was the role of Lamarckian uh, inheritance, right. inheritance of acquired characteristics. And they would take Lamarckian theory that, that the giraffe has a long neck because they stretch their neck right. for so many years. And as parents stretch their neck, then the neck stretching got somehow inherited by the right. children. But there's an expanding field of biology now, which is epigenetics, right. um, which is the, uh, the thing that controls the release of DNA. The, the, they're correct in that DNA itself is not modified by the parent's behavior, right. but the timing of release of certain commands in the DNA is... Exactly. Uh, so, in a sense, Lamarckism is coming, coming through back the back in. door, yeah. and they now have evidence, uh, which has been there all along, but people kind of didn't mm-hmm. want to look at it, of certain things that happen to particularly mothers can be inherited by the child and then can be passed on by that child to that child. So it's a, a generational thing that, well, we that eventually peters yeah. out, but it, but it does have a long-term tail to we it. We absolutely know that about endocrine-disrupting chemicals and their right. impact over generations, yeah. and that's related to the epigenetics. So in a, in a sense, these, yeah. these things have a, have a way of being vilified, and then by some strange alchemy, they sort of wind up coming through the back door. Right. Yes. Uh, my name is Biko. I'm interested in how, like, your brain put the musical scale right. to what you were looking at. And then at the same time, I know that, like, actual laws of harmonics and then our rules of music are about as divergent as the models that I saw. Yeah. And what I'm wondering is if you've seen more accuracy with the laws of harmonics and the, the perfect... Yes. Fifth, is that closer than even temperament? Yeah, what what the at? music that you're listening to is harmonic laws, not even temperament. Okay. It, it's uh, the, the what, what, what's your name? Biko. B, what Biko's talking about is if there was an object, uh, a, a bell-like object on the planet Mars, and a meteorite came down and hit it, that bell-like object with no human presence or interaction, that, that object would resonate at, a dominant frequency, which has to do just with the shape of the object, and it would resonate at a, a frequency double, uh, double that frequency and triple that frequency and four times that frequency and six times, each time with slightly less energy. And that's called the harmonic series. If, if the hit was the note C, then it would also be C an octave up, and then G, and then C, and then E, and then G, and then B flat, and then C again. And those are the things that we're seeing here. So it's it's music that would exi- music that would exist without any presence of any humans. We, we because we are who we are, we love to do things and then tinker with them. Mm-hmm. And we have de- uh, developed uh, musical scales, um, equal temperament that allow us to transpose music on a keyboard instrument from one key to another. Uh, and But we do that by slightly distorting the musical uh, values by a few percent. Any other questions? Yes. I just wondered, when you throw a pebble into the water, 
outreach. Is right. that similar? Yeah, no, I, I, that, that was something that I, I bought books on uh, exactly that. And it, it doesn't quite work. Um, but there's, there's something similar. I mean, it looks tantalizingly like that, but they don't, those ripples don't double uh, as they go out. They, they remain at single multiple values. They're, they're more like harmonics. Than, than they are like this. this. This has got something else. But that, that stuttering that I talked about that caught Plut uh, Neptune is kind of like that. It's like that, that's a single multiple of the previous orbit. So uh, there, there may be a more, uh, even a more complex action going on, but ex exactly that. There's, there's stuff in the book about uh, Cladney diagrams and cymatics, which is if you take a plate and sprinkle sand on it and then attach a vibrator to the plate and then increase the frequency, the sand will go into all kinds of very interesting circular and non-circular patterns. Diana and then Judith. Um, could you go into briefly the difference between strong and weak anthropic principle and causality? Is it the same in both? Yeah, in fact, there's even another kind of... Uh, anthropic. I, I have it written down. I, I can't immediately say what it is. I mean, Maya, I just wanted to say to both of you, thank you for existing. Oh. <laughs> That's great. That's kind. Other questions or comments before we close? Yes. Do you remember back in the 60s there were musicians working with a 12-note octave? Right. Harry Parch, and I can't remember who else. And right. Wondering if anything's ever been done in that arena. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I met Harry Parch once. I, I was living in New York at the time, and he was performing at, at Juilliard, which was in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I was into that stuff as a teenager. And he built these wonderful musical instruments that you know defied all of this kind of stuff. It was, you know, the, and uh, it it isn't. I, I haven't gotten traces of that. You know, he, he divided the uh, octave up into eighth, uh, you know, eighth increments and quarter increments and uh, uh, stuff that to the ordinary person sounds very discordant. But that was the kind of guy he was. But one of the critiques that was raised uh, in the book by one of the astrophysicists was that you had privileged a Western form of music, and you I'm responded. Not, yeah, no. You responded that you weren't. Yeah. That that it was. Yeah. This is as I said. This, this is Martian music. Uh -huh. it's, it's music independent of any human invention. Right. But didn't you say it? It connects with Pythagorean. Um, Intervals, or do I have that wrong? It was something. Yeah, the the Pythagorean scale, which is also known as just intonation, right, is uh, based on the harmonic series. Right. So again, it fascinates me that when human beings begin to try to understand the world, and you you reference this, yeah. that the Pythagorean insights into geometry, right, mm -hmm. turn out to be the intervals in yeah. in these uh, scales. and um, Yeah, I mean, as far as we can tell, Pythagoras, yeah. who lived, you know, 2,600 years ago, right. his uh, scientific uh, observations were the first, what we would call scientific observations. Right. Uh, and they were all based on music, and uh, he identified the basic principles of music, and he lent his name to the Pythagorean theorem. Uh, he didn't invent the theorem, but like Bode's Law, it became known by his. Uh, and uh, 
he immediately, his mind leapt out and thought, well, it must be the way the universe is. Mm -hmm. So we now know that that isn't the case. Thank you, Pythagoras. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a, a bridge too far. But it, there's something about the human mind that in a kind of apophenic way goes mm -hmm. uh, in that direction. Any final thought or comment that you'd like to leave us with? Uh, no, I mean, we're, we're in a very peculiar time right now in the United States with uh, the, the madness that's going on. I, I, after the inauguration, I would, on emails and letters, I would write day three of the Trumpocracy. Mm -hmm. um, but now I write day 72,864 because that's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like every... You know, you can't believe what's going on. It, it's, there, there's a, I was reading a book, uh, uh, actually it was a book on biology, and the author was um, making an, an analogy with uh, the, how DNA works with everything else in the biological system, like the shape of water molecules and other things that are just kind of given. And uh, he made an analogy with recipes, which is, when, if you just look at the recipe, uh, there are the things, but there are all kinds of things that surround the recipe, a sort of penumbra of what you do. You understand that you have to have a, this the right temperature and that what, you have to use a mitten and, you know, these things that just you learn. And somebody who doesn't know these things following the recipe will make a disaster out of it. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, that, that seems to be one of the many problems underlying this administration is that, you know, despite the fact, I mean, they're even going after, obviously, things that are in the Constitution. But all of the, what we, what we just came to assume was, well, this is how people behave, that they sell all of their assets and that they don't advertise things. And, you know, none of that's written into the Constitution. Well, some of it is, but a lot of it isn't written in. It's just we expect people to behave this way. And... They're not doing any of that. And so I think that's it's particularly why it's challenging right now. But, but my, my main concern after, after the election was just that the issue of global warming. And, you know, but okay, the United States, we had a good run. We lasted 300 years and then he ruined everything. And too bad. Uh, but in a global sense, these, these four years or whatever it's going to be, we're never going to get those back. And things are progressing at a speed now that um, is, you know, more and more challenging. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that um, different temperaments respond to the Trumpocene in different right. ways. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and having spent 30 years working with people with life-threatening cancers, um, I am always disposed to see the power of hope in people's lives. Yeah. And when I reflect on the beauty that you see in the universe and some of the uh, explorations that we've shared about its significance, um, I like to think that we are stronger than this, that we are better than this, and that this is a kind of the Trump yeah. period around the world. It's not just Trump. It's as nationalisms like this arising everywhere. I like to think that it's kind of the last gasp yeah. of, um, yeah. of a deeply regressive way of thinking and that what it is going to open up is the extraordinary power of humanity to take the next step. Mm -hmm. You know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, um, 
you know, that Trump is one man and that America is a much greater community of people. And we're watching this enormously powerful response. So it's hard to be optimistic in this period of time, but I favor as a more interesting way to yeah. live yeah, yeah. to be hopeful about it because I really do believe that American constitutional democracy is likely to survive. And while we will have a great setback here, it's just more interesting to live as if we have hope. Right. So, and, yeah. and that was the, the, yeah. the moral takeaway from the, the, the philosophy of as if. Is yes, exactly. That you act as if. As if. These things are good mm -hmm. and true, mm -hmm. and in some weird alchemical way, they, they mm -hmm. start to become true. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Walter Murch, it is an honor and a privilege to have you back at the new school, to live in the same community that you live in. And I simply want to say to all of you here and all of you who may uh, watch the, uh, the video or the podcast, this book, Waves Passing in the Night, uh, Walter Murch in the Land of the Astrophysicist by Lawrence Wexler, is an astonishing piece of work. And if you've enjoyed the conversation today, I just encourage you to get it because it will give you such a richness of context of the way uh, Walter thinks and of the capacities of the human mind uh, to uh, bring us deep into some of the most interesting questions that human beings can entertain. So thank you for right. being thank back you. with us. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Walter Murch and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.